0: I was born to walk through the fire I was made to
1: Thanks for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. My name is Brad and I'm the lead campus pastor and primary preaching voice here at Cornerstone Church Airdrie. We believe that the God who spoke so clearly all through the pages of scripture is still speaking to his kids today. So if it's me who's speaking to you or someone else on this recording, as you listen, we pray that you would know God, know his hope, know His purpose, and know
0: His power. Enjoy the message. Today,
1: we are going to take a look at Psalm chapter 32. This is, is the third, in what was a four-part series, now is going to become a five-part series, and we'll, we'll see more how that unfolds over the next couple of weeks. But what we're doing is we're looking at the book of Psalms. It's, it's a series about learning how to adopt and use these poems and prayers in the book of Psalms like a guidebook teaching us the language of prayer, what it means for us to talk to God, and specifically, how do we talk to God in the midst of the most difficult and challenging moments that life might bring? And this week, we are going to to look at what it means to talk to God, not when life circumstances are hard, not when when things outside of us have caused us pain or difficulty, but what we're going to look at this week is how do we talk to God When I have seriously screwed up, when I've hurt other people, when I've hurt myself, when I've dishonored others, when I've dishonored God. And to look at how do we even talk to God in moments where we're feeling so ashamed and so guilty. And as we look at Psalm 32, we're going to see the language of confession, of true confession. We're going to look at how do you pray through this kind of situation or life experience? How do we pray through when we fail? Now, if you're going to try and follow Jesus and you're trying to figure out this Christian thing, you are likely at some point and probably at many points to fail. It comes with the territory because we're just not that good at this being human, at being a follower of Jesus thing. So we're going to fail. Sometimes you're going to fail and sometimes you are going to blow it. Sometimes it might be a snap decision that you've made in a moment when it's over and you look back and you realize, I screwed that one up. I shouldn't have done that. I regret it. And sometimes it might be a moment where you knew what was happening and you knew it was wrong before it happened and you knew that it was wrong while it happened and still even after it happened and you did it anyway. How do we pray in these times? What is talking to God in these times and these moments look like? How do we process and pray through our experience of real failure, regret, and shame? And more than that, how do we walk through these seasons and moments in a way that brings life and hope and future into our lives? How can we walk through these situations where we find ourselves stronger than before, actually having more joy and more confidence in the one who's carrying us through? What if these times and seasons and moments were able to look like this? Now, when I say a word like confession, it can come with a host of negative connotations, guilt and shame, and remorse. The general tone of of the world, of this word, is a a weighty, heavy one. But in Psalms, we're going to see that confession is precisely the key to life, and joy, and freedom, and confidence. And what if these seasons of shame, and guilt, and remorse, and confession could actually lead us to joy, and freedom? This is what Psalm 32 is going to help us do today. And so to begin, we're going to look at verse 1. Seems like the right place to start. Verse 1 says, blessed, and it was interesting, it's funny because we know this word is blessed, but sometimes inside of church context we will say blessed, even though we don't say blessed anywhere else other than church. But blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. I want to talk, or I want to talk and take a moment here to talk about the very first word for a second, because blessed is a word that can get used in our Christian cultures quite a bit in lots of contexts, but it's really important that we understand what it means here. In this context and in this verse, what it's pointing to or what it's trying to speak to or get across to us is the picture of an ideal life. Like in a commercial or something, the the perfect picture of life. Everyone is smiling and happy and attractive and life is perfect. Having a barbecue on the beach kind of thing. And so when it says, blessed is the one, it's saying here essentially, life is perfect for the one who. So who is life perfect for? Well, these verses essentially say that life is perfect for the person who knows that they are deeply flawed knows that they have failed big time and that they know they need forgiveness. This doesn't sound so perfect to me, but what makes it perfect is that in this state of deep failure and the need for forgiveness, what makes it perfect is that they know that they have it. They know that they have this forgiveness that they know that they need. It's really an interesting perspective. Life is perfect for the person who has a deep understanding of their failures and their character flaws. And they know they're not okay. That they need forgiveness. But life is perfect because more than that, they know that they have it. The good life, the best life, the perfect life, the ideal life is apparently the forgiven life. Now, something that this does for us is that it can fly in the face of sometimes what we think of when we think of the perfect Christian life. That somehow our our religiosity and our human way of thinking is that the good life is is that if if we are religious and we are doing this thing right is to really essentially not need forgiveness because we're not doing anything wrong, that the striving for our best life is striving towards perfection in this moral way. But here David says, no, the best life, the best place to live, the most perfect way to live is not to just strive for perfection, but is to understand that we're not perfect. To understand our our failings and our, our failures, our brokenness and our flaws and our shortcomings and our guilt. But not to live there, to understand there, but not stop there or allowing ourselves to be swallowed up in that. But to know that in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all of our failure and brokenness, that the forgiveness that you need, that that you need to have in your life, it's there. You have it. Your sins are covered. Now, this concept of of your sins being covered and the forgiveness that's mentioned in the first half of this verse, these are two different concepts. It's not just a different way of saying the same thing, that your sins being covered are different than your sins being forgiven. And to really understand the idea of what it means for our sins being covered, we need to head back to the very beginning pages of the Bible and the story of the first created people of Adam and Eve. And to see this moment where they were given a choice to live with God under God's authority or to choose their own authority and their own rights and to live there and, they, and to choose how and where to draw lines of right and wrong and to define morality on their own. And we see that they, they choose this autonomy and to define good and evil for themselves. Now, in the story, if you know the story, what's the first thing? that they do after they've made this decision, the very first thing that happens. There is this little detail in the story that speaks volumes about our human condition and our human understanding and priority. The first thing that happens is that it says that their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked. And they become ashamed. And so they make themselves some clothes. They make some clothes for themselves. So so what exactly is going on here? Well, this is actually... A profound story about us as people it's it's about clothing but clothing really it becomes a symbol now on a basic level I'm sure that we can all agree that clothing is a good thing but functionally what clothing is is it's a way of covering up parts of my body that I do not want exposed to the world and in the story of Adam and Eve, it's not just about clothing, but it's something deeper than that. It's about covering up who and what we are. Because if you really knew what was going on inside of me, I would be ashamed. It wasn't that they had this suddenly had this idea of clothing planted in their brain. But rather they realized they were ashamed of who they were and they needed to cover up, and, and they saw as shame, they saw their shame and saw this as a way to hide. And so, this is a really different concept than the forgiveness of the first part of this verse. How, how blessed life is, how perfect life is for the one who knows that they've lived against God, have wronged him and other people, and yet is forgiven. But also for the person who knows that their own secrets knows what they are, knows that they're covered and that the areas of the life that they're ashamed of, that they won't let anyone else see. How blessed are they to know that they don't have to live in secret anymore. Because their God, their maker, knows everything and they don't have to hide from him anymore. And this verse really encapsulates what this prayer, what this psalm is all about. Leading us, helping us to, to end up in this very place, to end up in this blessed life. If, if you feel guilt and shame about something in your life and you know that you really need forgiveness or, or if you're just simply aware that there are things in your life that you wouldn't want anyone to know about, this psalm speaks to all of us and it tells us that the way to forgive, the way forward, the way that, that we can move on from this place is through confession. Verse 2 continues to paint this picture of bringing the truth about ourselves to God. It says, Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Our sins are not counted against us because we've brought them to God. We've allowed ourselves to, grow, to own up to the things in our lives that shouldn't be there. And we've even allowed our spirit to not be deceived by our own justification and reasonings for what we've done and why we did it. And we have just brought it all to God and dumped it down at his feet. When we're able to live in a place where we can do this with God, how perfect, how right life is. But David, he sort of starts this prayer off where, with where we're hopefully going to end up. But, but how do we get there? How do we get from where we are to this place? We we don't just want to know that it's great to be there, but how do we get there? What about where we are now? What what is this journey? In verse three, we we see what happens to a human being before we're willing and able to do all of this. And instead we do what so many of us try to do in our lives. We, We try stuffing it all down. So verse three says this, when I kept silent, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. Now, some of us have been here before. Well, probably all of us have been here, but probably only some of us are willing to admit it. The decision that we made, something that we did in our past or in our present, and we knew it was wrong, And we feel ashamed of it. And we take this thing, this moment, this failing, and all the emotions and feelings that go along with it. And we just bottle it up. Because we think that that's better. We think that that's easier. We think that that's what we would rather do than actually deal with this thing. And it begins to start to eat us up. It begins to ruin us. And the picture that that came to my mind with this, it's not a, a perfect analogy, but it gets us to where we need to go, is leftovers that get put in the back of the fridge. We put them in a container because we think it's the right thing to do. And then they just get pushed back further and further into the back of the fridge until one day we decide to clean out the fridge. And then we find this container in the back of the fridge that's been there for like two months. And what's in there is almost unrecognizable as it's molded and rotted and becomes this disgusting mess. And, and we do this to ourselves. We cram something in the back of ourselves, in the back of our lives, and say, I'll get to it eventually. I'll get to I will deal with it. We will take care of it. But really, we just leave it there. And it rots, and it molds, and it becomes so much worse because it never gets dealt with and so many of us have lived out verse 3 and verse 4 in our lives before and maybe we're living them out right now living with regret or guilt or shame and it's just killing us something we're ashamed of and we can't tell anyone about we try to hide it for for your bones to begin to waste away and your strength is beginning to get sapped because just hiding it away isn't helping but it's what we're choosing to do. We know we need forgiveness, but that's not the road we've chosen. And so we do our best to do something else. And we discover, and we're discovering, it's just bringing us death. But what we really need is forgiveness. What we really need to do is confess. And that's where we come to verse 5. Verse 5 is really the center of this prayer. It's the center of our time together. And it's this clear and beautiful act of confession. David says this, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David pulls the Tupperware out of the fridge that was rotting and killing him. And he offers it up to the Lord. He changes his way of of dealing with it. And he says to God, here it is. I'm not hiding it anymore. I'm, I'm not pretending that it isn't there. I'm going to bring it to you in all of its messy grossness. And here you go. But I want to unpack what David says here because it's really a deep and detailed picture of confession. David really gives us three steps here. He says, first, I acknowledged my sin. I named it. I said it out loud. I spoke it. Here is what I am covering. Here is what I am hiding. Here is the sin in my life that I've been trying to deal with on my own. And God I bring it to you. Then he says that he stopped covering up his iniquity. I owned up to the fact that I was trying to hide it. God, this is what I've been dealing with. And God, I have been trying to hide it from you. Because I was ashamed or because of my guilt or or for whatever reason, I was hiding this thing. But it's rotting me inside and I need to bring it out. So he names it. He stops hiding it. And then he says, I will confess. Now, confess, as we talked about, is a big, heavy-sounding word for most of us. But really, what the word confess means is that it just means to tell the truth. In the Bible, confess is a word that's used in lots of contexts. Not just these these big, heavy, negative ones. But it says, confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, And all that that means is to tell the truth. About who Jesus is. But to confess here means to bring out your stuff. And to put it out on the table. To tell the truth. About what's been going on in your life. Who you are and what you've done. And so you can see the flow of the experience here. I acknowledged it. I named it. I said what it is that's going on. I I stopped covering it up. I exposed it to the light of day. To the light of God. And I tell the truth. About what's going on. In my life, that this is a picture of, of how we take our sin from the dark, dank co- back corner of the fridge and bring it out and deal with it. But there's something else that's actually really profound that's going on in this verse here, in verse 5, that, Davis, da- that David shows us this three step journey of confession. But there's another three here. David uses three different words for confession. Or, sorry, three different words for sin. He uses three different words for sin here. And actually, in the ancient Hebrew, there are three different words that are used for sin. And David actually uses each one of them in this passage. So, first, he says, I acknowledged my sin. The Hebrew word here that's used here is this, and it's pronounced Hata'ah. And it just means to fail. Sometimes it means moral failure, but functionally what it means is to fail. And in the book of Judges, there's this little footnote about the tribe of Benjamin and how good they were with a slingshot. And what it says is, that when it talks about how good they are, it says that they could throw a stone and never hata'ah. That they could throw a stone and never fail. They could, never, they could throw a stone and never do this, this word. And so the, what the idea behind this is that as human beings, as people, we're here for a purpose. And you can fail to live up to that purpose. And one of the major ways that we can sin is when we know what our purpose is. We know what it is that, that we are and we know what it is that we're here to do. And unlike the tribe of Benjamin, who never missed, sometimes we, our lives miss the mark. The next word that he uses is the phrase, I did not cover my iniquity. And the word that he used here is this word, and it's pronounced aon. And this word is like a picture word. And the picture that it shows us is that life is is sort of like a a journey, a pathway. And we come to a fork in the road in this journey, in in this path, and we choose the wrong path. It's, it's going astray. It's to be wayward. And this word can have intentional, but, but it really, it, the heart of it is more unintentional. It's, it's this really important to understand this because sometimes we do choose to sin. Sometimes I know what's right and I know what's wrong and I do what's wrong. And we make that choice. But sometimes in our lives, we don't know that we're making a choice that's going to bring us to the place we end up. Sometimes we make a choice not realizing this is going to take me there. Sometimes we make a choice thinking that maybe this is the right choice. We're walking down a path and maybe we don't even see that there was a fork in the road. We just keep seeing the path and we we miss the other choice. All of these can lead to a bad place, but they all look really different in, in how we got there. And the last word that David uses found when he says, I will confess my transgressions. And the word that he uses is this one, and that is, is pronounced Pesha. And the idea behind this word is it's like a deep and real act of rebellion. There is a line. I know there's a line. I understand there's a line. I know what side of the line is good. And I know what side of the line is bad. I know what choice I should be making. And I am going to willfully and directly act and ignore it and step over it and do what I want regardless of what I know. It's not falling short. It's not making a choice that turns out to be poor. It's making a choice that we know is wrong and we do it anyway. And why this is important and why we needed to take time with this is because David, is both, David both paints this picture of, of the kinds of, of or what confession looks like, but then also the kinds and the ways that we can sin. We can fall short. We can end up somewhere we never meant to be, or, or we can make a choice to do something that we shouldn't. But in this picture, what David shows us is that regardless of how it happened, regardless of how we got to this place... What needs to happen is that we need to bring it to God. The best way to get to the good life is to get this stuff out on the table, however it got there, regardless of how it gets there, take it out and put it on the table before God. It's the best way to life. And then David closes verse, verse 5 with how God responds to us dumping out all of this stuff before him. He doesn't say that you considered forgiving. It doesn't say that you might forgive it, doesn't say you weighed the, the, the deeds to see if it was deserving of forgiveness. David says, whatever I brought to God, you forgave the guilt of my sin. And I did all of the heart searching I knew how to do and I dumped it out all on the table in front of God and God forgave it all. And so after David has experienced, has this experience with God where he pours out his heart and his life and his sin and everything out and witnesses God's response to the worst of him being only forgiveness, look at where this leaves David. Look at what he describes as a result of this. Verse 6. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters might not reach them. Or will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. He begins to speak in this deeply confident language. But it's not a confident in, in confidence in himself. He knows that he's messed up. He's aware of his sin and his failings and his falling short. But he's confident that God can and will do what he just did for David. If God can and will do that for David, he must be willing to do that for everyone. He's confident in the one who has seen the worst of him. And instead of throwing him out, invited him closer, and is now acting like his refuge. It's now acting like his hiding place. He has not just forgiven David, but he's brought him in closer and closer to now where David finds himself hiding in God. And this is such a picture of what real grace looks like. That David has carried out the very worst of him, and God doesn't throw him out. God doesn't throw him away, but instead God invites David closer. And even more than that, God moves closer to David. This is it, man. This is grace. This is the real thing. This is a picture of the relationship that we have with God. But when we, when we take it out of this context and we zoom out of just David's experience and we look at your experience perhaps and my experience perhaps of our sin and the the things that are wrong in our stories, the end result of my feelings and my shortcomings certainly isn't always seemingly a closer walk with God. It isn't a deeper connection with who God is that is is the this is in our experience this isn't always what takes place and so david in the last couple of verses here talks about that Talks about how we as people enter into confession and how we can make this a part of our story. How we can make confession and sin actually be something that brings us closer to God. He says this, he says, I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding but must be controlled by a bit and a bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Rejoice and be glad, you righteous. Sing all you are who are upright in heart. Now, in the middle of, of, this, of this, this discussion about confession and sin and living the best life, we get this weird little side parable about donkeys and horses. Now, by no means am I any kind of an expert or anything even remotely to that about this topic. I have ridden a couple of horses, never a donkey. But what I, what I do know is that when you ride a horse, the horse always wants to do whatever the horse wants to do. And as the horse rider, you are responsible to keep your horse doing what it's supposed to do and going where it's supposed to go. I remember being on a, a, a horse riding trip when I was back in high school, and, and we, had, we stopped in a meadow, and the, the instructors were like, don't let the horses eat the grass. But all the horses wanted to do was eat the grass. So you had to like sit on the back of these horses and keep reefing on their neck to stop them from eating the grass. Essentially, in in order to keep the horse on task, you need to lead it with its reins. Because if you want the horse to go right, you need to yank on its reins so that it will eventually go right. Because the horse may not on its own go right. And because of the bit and the bridle, it will cause pain and discomfort for the horse if it doesn't listen. So to avoid all of that, when the reins go to the right, the horse eventually learns through negative consequences that it should turn right. And that's how you get a horse. And I would imagine if you rode a donkey to to do the right thing. And what David says is, is, don't be like that. He says, don't be a donkey. But when we choose to bring our mess and our sins to God on our own, when we choose to do this because we know we should do it, not because we're afraid of negative consequences. Not because we're left with no other choice but to cop whatever it is. Not, not because all of our plans and schemes to cover up and hide have failed. Not because it's been rotting away at our life and our circumstance for so long that it's just killing us and we need to just do something. Because then we're being like a donkey. Then we're just being like a horse. Because just minutes after the rider, if just minutes after the rider were to let go of the bridle, let go of the reins on a horse, what's that horse going to do? It's forgotten about the pain and the negative consequences. And it just wants to be a horse again. It just wants to do whatever it wants again. But when we come to God on our own and we trust in him and his unfailing love, like David spoke about, we we confess our sin. We name our sin. We uncover it. We're honest about it. We sought help. and, And because we allow Jesus in there to do some real transformation with his unconditional love and grace suddenly this is a whole different process. Because the flaw in our understanding of confession that sometimes is that sometimes we fall into the idea that our confession is what does something for us. That does the work in us. That because I I have simply brought my stuff to God then I've done my part, that I can do just step one of, of confession, that, that I can just name it or, or that I can just say to God, God, this is what I've done. And then that should do the work of confession that, that somehow just simply naming it does the work in us, that I've brought my stuff to God. I've done my part. I've done my side of the deal. Now, God, it's your turn. It's your time. But confession in itself isn't where the healing comes from. The act of confession doesn't give us, get us where we want to be. It's allowing confession to be the first step in the journey of real change in our lives. It's allowing God, after we've acknowledged and opened up what's wrong in us, to move through us and in us to change us. That when we come with the heart that says, God, I'm coming to you With my mess, and I'm going to give you my mess to help me be clean from it. That's where confession has power. When we just confess and leave it at that, we're being donkeys. But when we give ourselves and our sin and our mess over to God and place it in our lives and our future and our sin and our hope and everything in His hands, then we discover that good life that perfect life, that perfect picture of life that only comes from the work of God in our lives.
0: When my mind is like a battlefield and my heart is overcome by fear
1: Thanks again for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Cornerstone Church, there are a couple places you can go. First is our website cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com and select the Airdrie campus. And some of the best ways to connect with us is through our social media channels. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cornerstone Follow us on Twitter at CS Erdry and on Instagram at Cornerstone Erdry. If you'd like to connect with the pastoral team at Cornerstone, you can do that again through our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com. Click on the Airdrie campus, then click on the About Us on the main menu, and then one last click on Our Campus Pastors. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get new messages delivered directly to you. We are so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Cornerstone Church Airdrie, we are a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. We follow Jesus together as family we go.
0: to